Can we please turn our Bibles to Come on, Barry. Luke 19? And up there it's called the, uh, the parable of the minas or minas. It depends on how you wish to pronounce it. Um, who, who likes it being pronounced minas and who likes it pronounced minas? Minas, anybody? Put Mine. your hands up for minas. <laughs> One, two, three, minas. One, two, three, four, the minas win. <laughs> uh, and um, according to my reading of the Greek, etc. No, my reading of someone's commentary on the Greek, um, it's minas as in like China, minor, it's, it's pronounced that way. Um, in, the, in, the, um, in, the, in the beginning of this, it's called the parable of the ten minors. Um, don't bother to count them, I counted 16 sitting here. Um, before anybody spends the rest of the day trying to work out how many coins there are, there are 16. Um, the, uh, when Malcolm asked me to deliver this sermon on this passage, he actually said to me, it's a tough one to preach. Um, and it is. It's a parable. Mm. Jesus talked a lot in parables, um, some of which he then explained to his disciples who couldn't understand them. Mm. Um, and those explanations are really good at actually understanding what he's actually saying in the parable. When the parable is a made-up story. It's not a fact, it's a made-up story. Jesus says, he made, this is a parable, he told this parable. It's a story he, he gave so that people could visualise the points he was trying to make. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really easy to misinterpret parables, to pick up the wrong idea of the parable, to get the wrong focus on the parable. When Jesus says, you have to do this, that's pretty easy for me to understand. You know, I could be like a clockwork soldier, wind me up, you need to do this, I'll pick up, I go. Except I can handle that. But then when you need to interpret it, and make sure that your interpretation's right, that can be very confusing. And, and often, in the commentaries and things I've looked at, when you inter if you interpret it this particular way, you then link it to this point, and then link it to this point, and it comes up with something over here which has got nothing to do, from what I can see, with what Jesus was talking about. But I've seen lots of commentaries which are talking about um, you know, well, this means that um, because this, because this, because this, that means that, that guy was going to die. And the whole focus was that guy's going to die. Nothing to do with what Jesus was actually saying from what I could see. Um, so, what I want to be careful of is, as we look at the parable, first I want to put it in context, then I want to expand it and look at some of the details of it and then bring it back together. Um, and then I have to put it through the Kate test. Oh. And the Kate test is a very simple test, which is, that's all right saying these things and giving me this information, but how do I apply it to my life today? Yeah? And that's a, a basic Kate test. If you want to be able to say, right, okay, how, tell me, you can tell me these things, but I don't want the history, I don't want the education, I want to know how to apply it to my life today. What do I do with this information in my Christian walk? But, um, the, um, as I mentioned before, the parable in my Bible here is the parable of the ten miners. Um, before we look at that, let's run over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, in case you haven't been there for a while, it's just for Hebrews, if that helps. <laughs> helps me. Um, 
I've been in Second Timothy for a while. Um, in Second Timothy, chapter three, verse sixteen, it's that the Bible says all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. <coughs> the key word in there is Scripture. All Scripture is God breathed. If we look at the title of this, the parable of the ten miners, I don't see that as scripture. Yeah. There, are, there are two things in this uh, parable about ten miners. One is the ten miners the nobleman gives out, which we'll see in a minute, and the other one is the ten miners that one of the servants made with it. So which ten miners is it talking about? Yeah. When the Bible was reproduced like this, it was put into chapters and verses um, with subtitles to make it easy for us that weren't used to learning the Hebrew way to make it easy for us to go and refer to it, to remember it. But these were written by men, well-intentioned men, very learned scholars, and that was their summary of this. And I guess the parable of ten miners is a lot easier to remember than the scriptures that Jesus talked about where he was trying to make this point or that point. That's a bit of a long subtitle to put on there. So, in my early days as a disciple, I would assume this was all about the ten miners. Until I learned that actually, just ignore the subtitle and focus on what the scripture says. And then I'm not distracted by what is written for the convenience of easy referencing, etc. So again, I say that because we talk about a parable, it's not just a, a piece of scripture which says this, this, this and this, which I can easily follow. Um, in saying that, I'm going to be adding to the Bible. Not all I say is going to be scripture. So I'm going to be doing the same as these people have done. I'm going to be adding words and stuff to the Bible when I talk through it. So just as that sort of commentary, mine's going to be commentary, and I think the best thing to do, first of all, is pray that God will correct words that come out of my mouth, will give the words that come out of my mouth, so that I, my commentary is not misleading in any way. So let's start with prayer. Holy Father God, thank you for this opportunity to uh, share your word, to share the words of Jesus as he spoke them, Father, to explore them, Lord, and to try and bring meaning to them in our lives today, Father, in the hope that we can all... Um, take something from them which actually helps us move forward in our life with you, God, over the coming days, weeks, months, years, etc. Um, Lord, please be very brutal in just throwing out words which are not mine, keeping me on course, Father, and ensuring, Lord, that um, uh, whatever comes out of this is, is true to what Jesus was saying at the time, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, We'll start from um, starting Luke 9. Sorry, it's a technical issue. Sorry, Luke 19. And we're going to start from verse 12. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. 
He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money, in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy with a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king, sorry, did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Okay, let's start with some context. Jesus is on his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. This isn't any old journey, he's going there to fulfill his destiny. He's going there to die. Now, Jerusalem was the place where the Jews expected big things to happen. It was the place where they expected their Messiah to be revealed, according to the prophets. And it's also the place where Jesus would die for the sins of the world, but they didn't know that. It was a place of central focus for Jews, but it wasn't their place, because they were under occupation. The Roman Empire had conquered them, and they yearned for independence from it. You know, people will fight to rid themselves of foreign rule. We've seen that in different countries, we see it in many places. People will not only fight for it, they'll kill for it. In Britain, an MP was killed because of her stance on Brexit, <coughs> leading up to the voting. So people have very strong opinions about what they want and they will fight for it. People often fight to get rid of a government that does something they don't like. Even if there is no guarantee that that will result in the government doing what they do want, or even that a new one would do what they want. But they'll still fight for it. They'll still get themselves into lots of trouble. They'll even go to prison for it, etc. With no guarantees they're going to get what they want anyway. You know, the Jews of Jesus' time were no exception. You know, they, they craved for independence from the Romans, but they also had a guarantee from the prophets that one day the Messiah was going to come and free them of all of that. What they didn't know, though, was when it would happen and how it would happen. But they knew it would happen in Jerusalem, because that's what the prophets had said. Yeah, in that crowd that were with Jesus... There were many hoping that Jesus was the Messiah, mm. yeah, who would bring this independence. Mm. There were many, maybe the rulers, who didn't want him to be the Messiah, didn't want him to bring independence, because it threatened their status in society. Mm. Now, not only did these rulers not want Jesus to be the Messiah, they were actively plotting to kill him. 
And here he was, only about a six-hour walk from Jerusalem, where big things were expected to happen. Right before our parable, we have the account of Jesus meeting with Zacchaeus. If I go back to verse, Luke 19, verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. In Jesus' announcement that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house, surely would have only increased their expectation that something dramatic was going to happen. Something was going to happen in Jerusalem, and something was going to happen very soon. Mm. This is reinforced in verse 11, where it says, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So, the Jews were rightly expecting deliverance from foreign rule, but they were wrongly expecting political deliverance, and they were expecting it now, very soon. So knowing this, and for this reason, Jesus gave this parable. So let's take a look at the parable. In verse 12, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then returned. Now the parable is about a noble man who had the right to inherit the throne of the kingdom. But he needed to go away somewhere to actually receive his crown. Now, it might sound a little strange in these days. They, um, I did actually think about this because when, as you know, Mark Timlin got his MBE. Yeah, he was nominated for his MBE by the uh, governor of Afghanistan, but he had to come to the Queen to go and get it. So it's, it's not that different. But in those days, it was normal practice. You know, Israel was under occupation at the time. It was part of the Roman Empire. And so a potential ruler had to be, to have his rule ratified by the authorities in Rome. Those were the rules. In order to get that authority, he had to go and get that authority from Caesar. In fact, 30 years prior to this event, back in 4 BC, Herod the Great died, and his son Archelaus went to Rome to receive authority from Caesar to rule over Israel. Now, Achaelus originally booked on the United Airlines flight to Rome, but unfortunately he dragged off because the flight was overbooked. Good, we are awake. I haven't lost you completely. But, but no, the journey to Rome was a long one. It was going to be a very long one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps lasting several months. We don't know. But it would be a long time. And Jesus emphasises this point when he says the nobleman went to a distant country. It was going to take a long time for him to get there and a long time for him to get back, having been crowned. In contrast, the crowd, who thought that Jesus' rule was going to be established immediately, Jesus is saying, no, that's not going to happen. It's going to take time, a long time. So in verse 13, we have... So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. 
So noblemen's called ten of his slaves, and some of, his, some of your versions may say servants, some say slaves. Apparently, according to commentary I've read, read that slaves is a better description of this, but servants, slaves, we'll take it, whichever. But slaves at that time, at the at time of the Roman Empire, were different to what we might think of, especially if we think of the American history of slaves. Yeah. Um, often, for example, educated people would sell themselves into slavery because they couldn't afford somewhere to live, although they were educated, they couldn't afford somewhere to live, they'd sell themselves into slavery so they had accommodation, but also they then had a worthwhile job. Yeah. And, um, they could save up money even while they were saved, until they only enough to buy their freedom. Often this was around about the age of 30, they could buy their freedom. Um, and by then they're set up in a much better proposition, a much better position to go forwards with their life. And, um, very often, high-ranking slaves had the authority to trade and act on behalf of their master, so they would trade in his name. So when a, when, a, when a slave came to you and did business with you, you knew he was acting on behalf of the nobleman, and it was the nobleman you were actually dealing with, and this was the person that was doing his bidding. So it had credibility with it. Mm. I also wonder if being in that position having built up the skills to negotiate with these people and the contacts they developed for their master, they may well have engaged in trading on the side in a much smaller way for their own benefit, yeah, to earn money to eventually buy themselves by their freedom. So whether slave or servant, the nobleman gives ten of them ten minors, which is one minor each. Now a minor was worth about four months' pay for a labourer, and depending on what part of the country you're in, that probably comes to somewhere between five and ten thousand pounds. Yeah, in, in our day-to-day. -day. So the amounts that were given were reasonable. They weren't massive enough, but they were big enough to do business with. Yeah. And he told them to put the specific money he'd given them, each of them, to work until he returned. But he didn't tell them when he would be back or what he expected of them, except to put it to work. So how did they get on? Verse 15... He was made king, however, and returned home, and then he sent to the servants to whom he'd given the money, in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner your, your has earned ten more. That means he's got eleven. The one he started with plus the ten. Now, we don't know what period this was over, but a tenfold increase is pretty impressive. Yeah? I, I took a quick look at a couple of things to see. For example, if you put that miner in a pension fund, yeah? Uh, pension funds invest on the stock market. Uh, what they work out is a 30-year average of what sort of return you get on an annual basis in the stock market, and they divide that into 10-year chunks. So they'll take, for example, 2000 to 2010, 2001 to 2011, 2002 to 2012, and they do the calculations on that, and then they take the average of all of those. And the recognised performance by the government and everybody else is, on average, the stock market grows at 7% a year. That's averaged over 30 years. There are some periods where if you'd invested in the stock market, you'd have lost half of what you put in, and no growth at all. But over that length of time, the recognised figure, which you'll always see in a pension plan or anything, is 7%, is the standard figure that's used. If you did do that, and took that 7%, to make a profit of 10 times would take you 36 years. That's if you got all the money that the stock market gave you back, but there are pension fund managers to pay for and brokers, etc., that take their percentage. 
And so the actual time it would take you to get 10 times is 49 years. And if you want to be really depressed and think about the consequence of inflation, which governments normally try at 2.5%, it's 97 years to get 10 times that money. <laughs> so probably they didn't go and invest in the stock market, so I don't even know there was one at that time. But those slaves would have traded. They would have bought and sold things which they were used to dealing with. They wouldn't have invested. Years ago, I knew a car dealer. I still know him. Uh, I was talking to him one time, and he said to me that once somebody's decided they're going to sell a car and buy another car, they don't bother with the existing car. They don't clean it up, they don't polish out things, they don't do small repairs, they don't make it look saleable. So he found that if he bought cars, small cars, normally around the £5,000 range, he could buy them, he could clean them up, polish them up, pay attention to them, make the tyres look that nice, shiny colour, etc. and do all those things and maybe spend about a day working on it. And even after he'd advertised it and paid for that and haggled over the sale price, he could make £500. So he'd make 10% on that car for about a day's work. And, he, and it would take him about a month to turn over one car. So from the time he bought it to the time he got it sold, got the money, and he bought the next car to go, it took him about a month. On that basis, I worked out that he would get two, make two times his money in 11 months, five times in 22 months, and he'd actually make that same profit of 10 times in just 31 months. In 31 months, maybe it wasn't such an unreasonable time for this king to go to this distant land and come back. Now, they probably weren't buying and selling cars at that time, <laughs> but, they could, but they could have certainly been trading horses if it was a nobleman. Partially the colours hoops, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, if it, but for, for a nobleman, they could be buying and selling horses, they could be buying yeah. and selling sheep. Yeah. They could be buying and selling timber for use, etc. Spicy. Yeah. Um, so we don't know what it's made up because it, what this was made up of because of what they did with it because it's a made up story. It's a parable. It's not the detail that we need to go into as to try and work out how they did this. But to achieve this gain, this ten times, they would have had the contacts and the experience and the opportunity to go and do it. It's rare you could do it from, you know, this person had been in the car business for 20 years before he caught on to just doing it this way. So it, it comes with those contacts and that experience, how to get the cars in the first place and how, how to go and sell them. Um, but he's rewarded with control over 10 cities. I mean, that's massive. Imagine controlling, having control over 10 Watfords. But it shows the reward is so much greater than what he was trusted and trusted with in the first place. Yeah. That's mm. the key point about it. Yeah. Now the second one, and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. He didn't bother to say, Well done, good servant <laughs> on this one, but it's not necessary to the story that Jesus is saying. Go and take control of five cities. Was well, that fair? You know, he was given the same money to work with, but maybe he didn't have the same contacts. Maybe his trade was in the timber, which took a lot longer to turn over, and he couldn't turn it over so many times to go and sell it. We could go into discussions like that, but it's pointless because it's not part of what Jesus is saying here. You know, there's so many unanswered questions if we want to dive into it to that, go in that direction, which is why it's not a wise direction to go. Now let's look at the third servant. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. 
So this third servant was too frightened, maybe, of losing the money that he hid it. He was frightened of the master. He felt it was harsh. So, he didn't do anything. He could have put it in a bank and got a minimum amount of interest. You know, currently that would have earned him £25 a year, which isn't going to be ten times or five times or double or anything. But it would be something. It would be a positive action. Yeah. But then the bank's name were probably as risky as Northern Rock was recently. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you have some sympathy. Maybe he just felt, I just need to keep this safe. That's all I can do. I don't know how to go and do this. I don't have the opportunity. I don't have the contacts. All I can do is keep this safe and give it back to him when he comes. Seemed to be his thinking. If I read into this story. Yeah. But what if he tried trading with it? What if he tried doing business with it? And it hadn't been successful he'd lost some of it. Or all of it. Would that be even worse than just returning the miner to the, to the master? What would the master have thought of that? We don't know. And we also don't know what happened to the other seven servants. Mm. Maybe that's what did happen to them. Yeah. But is this the message of Jesus? Is this the pointless parable? You know, the best investors, the business people are going to get to rule the most cities in the kingdom when it comes? You know, I don't see that as a core message from this parable. No. Yeah. For me, the key point here, here is in verse 13. Where he says, so he called, called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Put it to work. They already had their living costs covered and probably earned a small amount, which over time could establish themselves on their own. The nobleman hadn't told them to go and take their provisions and go and sell those and trade with those. He gave them specific funds to go and do something with and told them to go and do something with it. There were specifics he gave them. Very explicit instructions. Put the money to work, he said, until I come back. A very direct instruction to make that money work for him while he was away. And you see them when he came back, but they didn't know when that would be. So it appears the master's issue was not with how effective the third servant was in generating a return on the resources he'd been given, but more his endeavours, his commitment to doing what his master had commanded, to the best of his ability in the circumstances, or lack of in this case. The master is clearly unhappy that that servant hasn't used these specific resources as instructed. Even to the point of calling him wicked. Now, it's not a positive term, as it is sometimes nowadays, but, you know, <laughs> that, was a, that, was a, that was a major, major derogatory statement by his master to call him wicked. Going from a servant to being wicked is a big gulf between those two points. Mm-hmm. And can have, you know, pretty horrible consequences. But he, he was wicked because he didn't have faith in the master. The master told him to go and do something with it. Go and use it. He didn't say you had to achieve certain things. He just said go and do something with it. Yeah, so put it to work, not just put it away. We know he was called wicked. We know the additional resources the master had given him, the miner, the miner sorry, was taken away back from him. We don't know what happened in his future. You know, although it didn't look as pleasing as it was to the other servants that had done well, we don't see any evidence of 
what happened to him, of him being kicked out of the Master's Kingdom, of being killed, or anything. That's a big contrast in full... Sorry, on the other hand, the king was absolutely clear about those that had opposed him. That had the audacity to send a delegation after him, asking for him not to be made king. If we look at verse 27, But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. You know, kill them in front of me. I want to see it. Yeah? That's pretty brutal. So there's a big contrast in fortunes here. But what's Jesus trying to tell us, I think, from this parable? What's he trying to tell those that were following him, those ardent followers of his? Because that's who he was speaking to at the time. We get the benefit of seeing it in hindsight, but he, these are the people he was speaking to at the time. What's he telling those people on the sidelines that are watching and listening, but they aren't one of his followers? And what's he also telling the people that are listening and reporting back to the rulers to tell them what's going on? I think the first thing was he was making clear he was going away for some time and only when he returned would he establish his kingdom. It wasn't going to be immediate like they were hoping for which it clearly states and there was a reason given why he gave them this parable. And it's clear that those who opposed his being the king would not be able to do anything to stop it. It's clear that when he returned, everyone would appear before him to give an account of themselves and to be judged accordingly. That his servants who did as his commanded were richly rewarded, and that his servants that defied his command would be seen as wicked and their future was uncertain. And those who opposed him, both during his time with them and in his absence, would have no further existence upon his return. I think those are key things that we can take out of there that would have been obvious to anybody that was listening to him then. So now we return to the cake test. <laughs> How does this apply to our lives today? I think if you're following Jesus, truly trusting him, then lean on the extra resources he gives you, being that compassion, understanding, love, kindness, hospitality, strength, skills, money, wisdom, free time, they're all resources that we get given to shine more brightly in the world and attract others to learn the truth about our purpose and our destination. I think if you're following Jesus but have grown distant from his love and have lost some confidence that he's looking out for you and you, and you don't feel able to rely on him because of life challenges, disappointments, sickness, worry, mm. then be open. Share your concerns today with a member of the church that we can join with you to help you strengthen you and rekindle that faith. The faith in his promises is to all to fall in love with Jesus all over again and let his, shine, let his light really shine out through you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, God has caused you to want to come here or to agree to come here for the chance to get to know him 
to learn of his love and generosity, to feel his presence in your life and to talk through, talk to him through his word. So I encourage you to overcome any reluctance you may have and ask someone here to help you to understand more about our true living God. Yeah, this can lead you to a point where you can make an informed decision whether to follow Jesus or not. And when you get to that point, don't do what the third servant did. Yeah, he did nothing. Not really knowing the master, he misunderstood the opportunity given him. And being in fear of the master's intentions, he disobeyed the very one who could give him everlasting riches. He did nothing. When I was writing this, I couldn't help thinking about a friend named Russell, a friend of Kate. Uh, lives down the M40 way. Um, he was studying the Bible in another church. Um, and he got to a point whereby he felt that, yeah, it's, I want to be, I think I want to be, just that, just not sure. And I sat down with him one day and we were talking about it. And I was sort of, okay, so, how are you feeling? He said, but I'm just there, etc. But I'm, I don't know, I, just, I don't know what it is. I said, well, look, at some point, God is going to come back and take his people with him. And everyone else is left for Satan to deal with. Where are you? <coughs> he looked at me and said, well, I'm, I'm sort of sitting on the fence. Okay. Whose fence is it? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I was, well, God is just straight with what you need to do. Satan's the, grand, the great deceiver. That's all right. That's not necessarily you know, Eve, he didn't really tell you die if you ate the apple, did he? <laughs> mm. yeah. Satan isn't going to go, okay, here's all the pros and cons of going, going on God's side, and here's the pros and cons of going on my side. He's not going to hold up big billboards for us to decide which way we want to go. You know, because deception is his thing. The more mm. he can deceive us that we're okay. Members of my family feel they're okay. They pray occasionally, they feel they're okay. Yeah? The more he can deceive people that they're okay, the less they're going to actually make the commitment to God. So I went back to him and said, well, yeah. so when God comes, and you're on the fence, whose fence is it? Now, Russell got baptised two weeks after that, um, and he actually said it was the final thing that actually made him just make that action. But, thank you, God, for throwing those words in my face that, um, just to speak. But you know, if we are in a position, let's just not do nothing because it doesn't get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think, from my perspective, these are things the way we apply it. We can apply this parable of Jesus, this teaching to his people. This, to me, matches up with what he was saying and allows us to apply it to our lives today. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Now we can take communion. So let's pray for that. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much, Father, that we can dig into your word, Lord. Pray, Father, that um, yeah, although we went off the tangents, Father, we, we, got, we can see your word where it lies, Lord. It, we see the path we, we should take. We know you're a gracious God, Father. You know that you have so many great things in store for us, Father, and just help us walk, Father, with our walk constantly towards you, Lord, knowing that you're there alongside us, helping, Father, whenever we look at you for help, you're there helping us and guiding us, God. 
pray, Father, that we'll always do that and look to you um, and, uh, and not just freeze and do nothing, Lord. Uh, Lord, now we're going to um, take the bread and the wine as we celebrate the death and the resurrection of your son, Lord, that has made everything of this possible, Father. Mm. Your son here that was, gave us this parable, that was going to Jerusalem, knowing full well, Father, this was his time to go through excruciating pain and die to come back to life, to enable to go back to you and then come back with his kingdom at another time, Father. Lord, we're so grateful for your son, we're so grateful for your love for him that you'd allow him to do that, God. Um, so grateful and amazed that um, you even care about us to, to do that, Lord. Uh, please help us um, as we take the bread and the wine, Father. Be with us, God. Be with us as we take those very things that symbolize your son, his death and resurrection, Father, that um, we can really take part in the death and res resurrection and be that much closer to you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.